0: Hello, and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and I am especially excited to introduce my guest today. Um, You may know her best as Dr. Beverly Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation. She's also a choreographer and a puppet master, and host of Nacelle Cast Studios' new podcast, Gates McFadden Investigates. Who do you think you are? Welcome to Gates. Oh, hi, Danny. I, I just i Am so thrilled to have you on the show, not least because uh, I recently rewatched *Labyrinth* for the first time in ages, oh, wow. and recently-ish before that, had a chance to see an old friend who was also a graduate of the Jacques Lecoq School of—I I don't know how to put it—like clowning is not quite right. No, no, Thoughtful it's move- movements, not movement quite right
1: in theater. It's mime, et theatre, you know. And also, it's—it's it's more than that. Yeah, he—he he really was. A genius, but we'll talk about that later. I hope because I'm so excited.
0: I was so mesmerized. Excited. She had these like
1: specific movements that she
0: had to go through in these specific uh, orders, and like at one point, I really thought she was going to jump behind an invisible wall. It was, <laughs> it was some of the most striking series of movements I've ever seen. So I'm very excited to hear more about cool, that later. Cool. Um, I'd love to start by advising some strangers. I think that's always a great way to get to know somebody for the first time. This one really been sitting with. I, this, this is just somebody with a lot of concerns about the women in his life and um, I wonder if we can't help him be a little bit less concerned. The subject is I miss my wife's face. My wife and I have been married for nearly 25 years and we're both in our late 40s. In the last few years, many of her friends have started getting plastic surgery or Botox and face fillers. I was a bit surprised when my wife expressed interest but felt it's her face and her prerogative. Occasional Botox injections, which in my opinion didn't look great, have now graduated to regular fillers. I hate it. My wife doesn't look younger. She looks like she's had work done. She's thrilled with how she looks, and any gentle comment I've made is met with the accusation that I'm focusing on her appearance and not supporting her freedom to make choices. Basically that I'm anti-feminist. I loved her face when it moved I don't want to kiss her inflated lips. This has killed our sex life. But the other day, my 14-year-old daughter made a comment about wondering when her mother would start expecting her to get Botox. I'm fed up and don't know how to talk to my wife about this. Yes, I support her right to make her own decisions, but I feel like I also have the right to not like it, and I don't want my daughter to think about doing this as part of her freedom of choice. Please help. I I'll start simply by noticing it does seem to be true that whenever people are quarreling and their kids are even tangentially involved, it'll turn into suddenly my daughter. Whereas earlier it might have been our daughter. And now it's just like, well, I don't want my daughter to get the wrong idea. It's just like i I just I, I often notice that little linguistic shift of just like, it's me and my kid against you, or or this sort of attempt to sort of like Transfer one's own wishes or one's own desires or discomforts onto the sake of the child. we like, it's not me, it's our daughter, it's our daughter. Right? I, I don't want to say anything. I want you to make your face look terrible if it makes you happy, even though I don't understand why. But look at her over there. Did, did that strike? Does that strike you as
1: me taking it a little too far? Does that seem true? No that that part didn't didn't hit me because it could be read. I don't want my daughter to look like that. And it's not possessive. I I mean, I think that is in the eye of the beholder based also on our experiences. I had tons of questions. For me, it was like, how was your sex life before she began doing this? Hmm. You might have thought it was great. But did she feel sex? How was her sex with you? You know, I mean, it's interesting because he now is not turned on, but maybe she is turned on. See, there's a lot of things I don't know. Right. Like like sometimes if a woman is feeling, I'm, I am just, God, look at that. My lips are just so thin now. And, you know, and then if they get a little something that makes them feel fuller, mm-hmm. it, it, I don't know. It depends on the degree, the balance. It's like. Do we all want to put Botox in our lips? Not Botox. It would be something else. It would be filler so -hmm. that we all look like, you know, um, the housewives from some city, you know, whatever one of those shows are where we basically look like we're having a mask on. Do we want to have faces that don't move? That does become Stepford Wife's weird. okay? Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, there are a lot of people who have little things. And if it makes them feel good, maybe it's okay. You know, maybe it's not some horrible thing, but obviously their sex life has been changed for him. Mm-hmm. So they should discuss what it was like before and they should see how turned on she is because, you know, that's interesting. Maybe maybe uh, the two of them have been watching a lot of porn and all those women have big yeah. fat lips. You know, I don't know. And then regarding the daughter, it was unclear to me whether the daughter was saying to her father, "Oh God, when is she, gonna, she is she soon going to start making me want to have Botox?" Because that's also weird, you know. You get to a certain age and you're trying to be like your parent. For, there's a certain period. Yeah. Then there's <laughs> thankfully another period where you're like, "God, I don't want to become like them." And then there's right. the period I'm in where you go, "Oh damn, I'm just like my parents," <laughs> you know. But I think there's a lot of things that were unclear in that if the daughter is becoming obsessed with putting things like not accepting who she is then then there is a problem going on there it's different it's not like somebody who has felt like they were another gender from when they were born or somebody it's nothing like yeah. that it's about something that's very superficial and we should remember because i was googling all this stuff fillers disappear into your body so it's not something that cannot be changed back so yeah. there is a discussion and i didn't i feel that again just being getting in therapy and talking about it with your wife and saying but I'm not turned on with this and she's saying yeah but I wasn't turned on before right you know and then see where we're going to go you know yeah there's such such standards of beauty and I certainly have been subjected to that all my life being in this industry but when he says the thing about a feminist that's what I object to because okay I was a feminist in the 60s and 70s and that meant I didn't do bikini waxing. I didn't shave under my arms. I didn't wear makeup, Mm -hmm. okay? I did not conform to the Madison Avenue, what they told me beauty was. I didn't have my hair all curled. Now I'm conforming much more, okay? But I didn't then. So I feel you can't really say, it's, it's questionable because I think that all of these things, it's like Victorian women. Who wanted to wear a corset and then look, that weird when they had the corset off. I mean, you look like a weird person. So I think we're in a phase now where everyone is looking like, you know, faces don't move. I, I don't know. Something's going to have to happen because I don't believe this is coming so much from anything to do with feminism, to be honest. <laughs> I think it has to do with money and power and how you feel sexually powerful. And it's related to capitalism more than it is anything else. I think
0: that's a really, really important corrective. Yeah, I don't want to shut this letter writer down entirely, but I think when he starts to kind of get into the weeds of, you know, if she is implying that I'm anti-feminist, then we're just going to need to have an argument with our daughter about what is the feminist thing to do with your face and what isn't. Right. And then we'll just make a list of what's okay and what isn't. And um, yeah, I, 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 t- I take your point too about the the fact that it, it sounds like based on this letter writer, uh, his wife is currently played around with some Botox and some face fillers, both of which are uh, not permanent, both of which either dissolve back into your body or the effects simply fade. So I I think that is useful to consider here. These are not permanent interventions. Um, These are interventions that can be tweaked. These are interventions that sometimes somebody might start small and scale up. Sometimes they might start
1: larger and scale back. Um, They cost money, though. They are costly.
0: Yeah, they cost money. And and that's
1: where I I understand his point of view entirely. I would not find kissing gigantic boobs or gigantic lips if I were a man that, you know, but then I'm not a man. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe some people would find that a big turn on. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's going to for both of them depend on if they want this marriage, (laughs) because ultimately it's a sign of something. Yeah. Is the woman doing this so she can be sexy for her husband and make her relationship better? Or is she putting those fillers in so she can be with the other women in her group and she can be show that she ha- can spend money on herself that way? Who's paying for them anyway? Mm-hmm. Does she earn her own money and she's doing this? I think a lot of women, especially with the YouTube things, I look at some of the videos and it's like, wow. There is such an obsession of knowing the new tricks, the new everything. Uh, Part of it is wonderful. It was all a mystery to me. It took decades before I understood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I really think that that the hard thing is just to stay open, to ask her really why. She feels more beautiful for whom? For herself, that's important. How much does the relationship and the sexuality that she has for her husband mean? And vice versa, you know? Because you want to have a sex life, And you want to have a relationship where you both appreciate each other for who you are, you know, not just what you look like.
0: Yeah. I think that is the right tactic here. I think especially, you know, I was a bit surprised when my wife expressed interest. And then, you know, it seems like the letter writer felt like, well, I know what I'm supposed to say, which is it's your face, do what you want. Right. And then he realized, I actually do have some opinions here. And hasn't yet figured out how do I avow those things without either saying I therefore demand that you do this to please me or just, well, it's your body, so I shouldn't say anything. You know, because clearly the whole I've made some gentle suggestions hasn't been working for you. (laughs) Right. Partly because (laughs) gentle suggestions, so like they're so transparent most of the time, it's usually quite obvious what the person actually means. And so I think, yeah, the, the right thing to do is to say like, you know, when you first mentioned you were interested in this. I was kind of surprised. I felt like it was my role just to say, you do what you need to do. I think I haven't done a very good job of that because then I did have some opinions and I started dropping hints and I know that that's bothering you. I don't want to drop hints anymore. So I guess what I'd rather do now is just ask questions. When did you start thinking about this?
1: Yes. What
0: do you like about this? Yes. Um, Has it been painful for you when I have dropped hints about it? Um, are there better ways? Do you just want me not to say anything? Cause you know, then we might have a different fight about that, but I'd like to know. Um,
1: also what about maybe she thinks he, you know, how does she think about his body and his face? I mean, does she still find it attractive or is, you know, what has started this whole thing of wanting to be different? I understand what people wanting to, to, you know, gee, we want to live longer Mm -hmm. and look better. That's fine but what about the relationship i think it's really about figuring out what's the most important for both of them
0: yeah and then i think the last thing is just then you also need to you know tell your wife what you heard from your daughter and it, it, you know there's so many different possible things that could have been behind that some of that could have been uh something that she's been picking up from her mother some of it could be that she's been picking up from you that you don't like it and she wanted to you know ally herself with you um, it, it could just be a dig. There's. I remember when I was 14 and all the different ways that I wanted to try to needle my mother and all the different ways that she, you know, asked me like, you used to wear so many skirts and now you don't wear skirts anymore. What's that about? And, you know, then I ended up, you know, becoming a man just to spite her. Um, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. Not only to spite her. <laughs> I didn't want to spite her, but I also sometimes enjoyed spiting her and it's, it's all, it's all a rich tapestry. Anyways, all of which is just to say, then you can talk to your daughter together. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure no matter what else your wife has been, you know, dealing with, she was, she's not going to say to your daughter, yeah, kid, when you're 18, I'm taking you in for your first like round of fillers. Right, 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 right. I I think you two will be able to get on the same board there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I hope so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if nothing else, if your 14-year-old decides eventually, like, I'm just going to do the opposite of what my mom does, and they get a little fraught for a while, I'm sorry. But that also will just happen. You know, once yeah. my mother said that to me, I was just like, I'm going to wear pajamas every day. I don't know <laughs> if I'm getting anything out of this, but I sure as hell know that uh, you're getting something out of it. That's what I need right now.
1: But kids have to separate from their parents, let's face it. You know, it just has to happen. Otherwise, it really can be troublesome, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Better now fighting about Botox as opposed to at 24 screaming at you in their childhood bedroom. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, those were some fabulous problems to get to adjudicate. I'm having so much trouble deciding which one I want to segue to first because part of me thinks, all right, he said his wife's face doesn't move anymore. I can just segue right into movement and ask you about Lecoq, and I think that's what I'm going to do because I've just been so, so curious ever since I learned that you had graduated there. How did you end up going to a movement school in Paris? What was that like?
1: It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, really. It was one of the best things. Um, So I was a senior at Brandeis. We were strike headquarters, okay? It was 1970. I was a year ahead in school and I had been taking the graduate acting classes. So all of my classmates in acting were going to get their managers in New York City and, you know, or their agents and their career. And I was really just not my, I didn't think about career. I really didn't. I was going what do I want to do? And I, because I had studied, I had started dance training and stuff when I was like two and a half years old. It was ridiculous. I was pushed to do it by my parents, but part partly it might've been because I have a big spinal curve, which I never knew about until I was an adult and had a bone scan. And they went, holy shit, you know that you have a major scoliosis, like huge. And I wow. went, no, but it explained why I never got chosen as the ballerina, which I always used to think, oh, I'm just lousy, you know, but it was really because my back wouldn't bend well. At any rate, I had done every, I had done Marcel Marceau mime. I mean, I can do a mean wall, you know, I can climb and do all that stuff, right? Before Michael Jackson, I was doing all that. Wow. It, but it wasn't cool then, you know, I was doing it. I, I don't know how that happened. And then I would ride a unicycle. I did a lot of circus tricks. A couple of my teachers were had been in a circus, so I knew how to do all this stuff. It was wild, but it wasn't considered like now, Cirque du Soleil, everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. People were like, huh? You know, like you're, you're weird. And then Brandeis was very, very um, wonderfully hippie. I just loved it. I loved mm-hmm. how different it was and everything. And so I, I got offered to do a workshop. I, I, there was a, a man coming from Paris named Jacques Lecoq. It was his first American visit that he was going to do a workshop for three days at Harvard University. And I found out about it because I had been – choreographer for the Harvard Hasty Pudding Club. And wow. I was asked, I had been waitressing. I met some guys and they were like talking about, you know, I think they were trying to come on to me in a way, but it turned out they were the people who ran the Harvard Hasty Pudding Club. And they said, well, what kind of dance did you do? I said, oh, well, you know, a couple of my friends are rockettes now. And we did a lot of kick lines and they're like, oh, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I ended up doing that. And so i Think that's how I found out. I read something he was going to be there, or somebody told me. I don't know. I got in because I had had mime training, and I was an acting student. And in that three days, it just changed everything. Wow! He synthesized everything I loved in the world. He talked about architecture. He talked about visual arts. He talked about Greek tragedy, clown, commedia. He just and silence, like you you studied silence so that you could understand why we have words you know when do words have to come in you studied immobility to know when we have to move i mean just all of that kind of thing it was very philosophical i really do feel he was a genius in the field because he just synthesized it all mm-hmm. and he gave me a scholarship after and i said i really i went up and went i really would like to study with you no one in my family had ever been abroad and I said, but I can't afford it. He said, I'll give you a scholarship if you can get yourself over there, and I'll help you find a job. And so that's what happened. And then when I came back after a little over two years, uh, and it was because of working papers, mm-hmm. he, we did a three-week workshop at Harvard, and he let me be his assistant. And everybody who went, there were all these faculty members from all of the top drama schools in the United States and some from England. They all wanted him, and he said, "No, no, no, I'm going back. I have my own school. Why don't you hire her?" And I was like 23 or something, 22, 23, and I didn't even think about it, you know. And he and I went, "Really teach?" No, I was going to. And he's like, "Just do it. It's better than what you're seeing. You know, it'll be good." And I ended up having time to develop my own ideas. It took a a while, Mm -hmm. but because in the beginning, I was just like a parrot saying exactly what he had said. But he believed in that elasticity of thought, of things that, you know, there's that thing of logical thinking is we we can shut out those weirder ideas sometimes and sometimes the imagination, and you go, no, no, it can't be that way. Like, no, she can't have fat lips or whatever. Whatever it can be. But when we actually start to look at how our muscles, I mean, we train with our muscles are like elastic. They have to grow slowly, you know, and they can transform and our minds can do that too. And I felt all the time he was getting me to see something in a way I had not seen it that way before. And that was such a gift, you know, that you just, you know, you look at something, you, you look at a tree. And because you've really studied things about how, if I were, I mean, it sounds silly, but you know, how could I be rooted up and have something and how can I have a presence of a tree? We actually have a lot of things in common, humans and trees, actually. Yeah, Things like that. You know, what can I say? I really, really loved it. I mean, for whatever it's worth, I don't think that that's a ridiculous thought
0: at all. I think anyone who can help you formulate a question of what might it be like to be something other than myself. Right. It's incredibly valuable, especially as a teacher.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he had this way of teaching you so that his way was always, no, that doesn't work. He never would say, that works. You would just know if people responded, uh, mm. you know, as an audience. And it was a very tough way for a lot of people. There were, a lot, there were many students who didn't like it because it seemed very judgmental. I mean, he could be harsh. I thrived under it. I have mm. to say, for me, I, I liked it, and I felt at one point he was like I was very into directing in an early age, and I felt when we would do these creations every week, we had to come up with an autocour that was this original little piece of work from observation, and then we'd put something together mm. and I felt like I was really, you know a huge contributor to some of these things, and he would always, in the beginning, he'd always be looking at the guys when he would critique, and I remember coming up to him and saying could you please call me by my last name instead of Mademoiselle? Could you say, you know, McFadden, you know, uh, and also look at me and critique me with the guys? Because I think he also had a shyness, but he was always looking at the guys, you know? Mm -hmm. And you know what? He did. He Mm. went, McFadden, you know? (laughs) And it became a thing. But for me, it was important because I felt seen, and I felt like I was participating. And... um, yeah, remarkable man. Yeah, that's that. That is a
0: truly remarkable story. And I'm, now I'm just thinking of all the different ways in which politeness uh, can can feel like being made invisible.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I'm just, I, I hope very much. I know that you have your own new podcast launching, um, where you are mostly talking to. It sounds like your old friends and former colleagues. Yeah. And I'm so hopeful now that you'll be able to get somebody from you know the Lecoq School.
1: It would be cool. Uh, yeah. On the
0: show, do you still keep in touch with anyone else who's involved? No, or?
1: it was very hard because it we didn't have computers back then. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, it's a vast difference. I keep telling my son, you know, when I went there to France, I had no phone. There wasn't a there was maybe one phone in the building with the concierge. Yeah. And I would have to go to the post office and pay $10 to speak for three minutes on a phone call. So I did it maybe once every four months, you know. Yeah. It was a lot of money. And it's just a completely different world. I wrote letters, um, and I, I made up sad songs, <laughs> you know, and I played it on my guitar. You know? mm-hmm. And I went to see Buster Keaton movies, you know, because he was huge. And all of the Keaton and Chaplin, we always had silent movies going on all the time. I would imagine,
0: especially like safety last in that kind of movement oriented (laughs) school, you would uh, get a lot out of it.
1: But you know the way Lecocq is, his school now. I mean, it's this cool place, and it never was that when I was there. I was in the early years, the very early years. I don't think you did it
0: before there was cred for it. Oh yeah, for the love of the movement.
1: Oh yeah, because first of all, we didn't have that many students, and. Our first place, we, we would have puddles on the concrete floor of water. We When we rehearsed, I remember we had to pay seven francs to pay for the electricity for the rehearsal. I mean, it was like a whole different thing. And then at one period, I think he was trying to raise money to be able to buy the new school, which is the coolest freaking place you've ever seen. It's, it used to be a boxing ring, and then they just, it's fabulous. But I wasn't a student when we were in the fabulous, they were in the fabulous place, I think I did, I went back and did a buffoon workshop with him when he was in the new place, and man, it, I loved it, you know? Is buffoon, like, the character, or is buffoon just the tone of the entire workshop? Buffoon, no, he, the, like, the, there's hero, clown, and buffoon, mm-hmm. okay? The hero has the hamartia, ha, however you want to pronounce it. I always said hamartia. I prefer to write it down, so I don't have to worry about <laughs> pronouncing it. Well, some people say hamartia or something, but I don't I don't say that. Good for them. He, uh, He always... That has the flaw where the the sun is actually on the left here, but he wants it so much to be on the right that he doesn't see that it's behind him. And so that's his downfall. He refuses to see the, some truth. The clown knows where the sun is, but is the world wants the clown to say that it's in this other place. But the clown knows it's not. But because the clown wants to please mm-hmm. the world, the clown will go, yeah, yeah, I see. You know, the clown will lie yeah to to please the audience, the buffoon tells the truth. that's why the buffoon we always had to transform ourselves, our bodies so we looked really ugly and deformed because then you can speak the truth, nobody's threatened by you. Mm. so that was what buffooning was and it was it was wild. I can't say that I became an expert in buffoon i He was developing clowning when i at my period, and so we've spent a tremendous amount of time doing that, and that's something I've taught myself for for years at theater schools is that kind of theatrical clown. That's
0: just remarkable. And that's a, a beautiful sort of um, roster of different relationships to truth and reality that I actually feel like I might just um, crib from you and, and use on future episodes of the show. I'm going I'm to keep this in mind It's a, it's a defining system.
1: Tell me about your friend now. I want to know about your friend who went to Lecoq's.
0: This was a friend of a friend. Um, I was in Paris maybe two summers ago and um the friend that I was with had strangely enough dated a series of people who had all ended up going to Lecoq. So this, this person was just like, I don't know wow. why, but if I date someone, she ends up going to clowning school. <laughs> um, and I was so sort of intrigued and she had been able to sort of describe it, you know, the way that you do when you're like, well, I've never done this, but a lot of my exes have, um, which was, there's there's like these 19 movements in a row they all do. And you have to do it very specifically and very much in order and, one of it involves peering over a wall, and I couldn't possibly describe it, but if I can find one of them, I'll ask her to do it for you. Mm. And we eventually ran into her, and we were having you know, a picnic out by the Seine of as you do. Um, and the sun was setting and she, you know, it had been years, but she offered to go through them all one after another. And it took her a few minutes. She was a little rusty at first. And then all of a sudden it was just like she was pouring herself into this theater in front of us mm. and like weaving in and out of different moments and stories. And sometimes she would get stuck for a second and then she'd remember and you'd see her whole body just kind of light up. And it was one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. And then she was done and she kind of somersaulted and that was it.
1: We were done. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Well, see those 20 movements, everybody would do them in their own unique way. Hmm. And you had to do them in a pattern, but you could decide your pattern, at least when I was there. Yeah. So it really makes a big statement what you choose, you know, whether you put that somersault before or after or during. It makes huge differences and it says something about you, which is what's so wonderful. You really can sort of see who you are. And he talks about things like breath and being aware of, I mean, everyone in theater talks about breath. You have to use your air. But there's something about just the intention. When you have a mask on and you learn, I never studied puppetry. I studied mask and I taught mask. Mm. It's the same articulation that a puppet has to have. If you have something, you know, in your hand and you're articulating it, right? It's looking, it's, it's whatever you're doing you know up and down you're doing the same thing with a mask you learn how every tilt is a thought that you're sending out it's mm-hmm. a statement and what your breath does is enormous and you can dramatically change the whole feeling on the stage at that moment by by just letting an exhale out i mean mm-hmm. it's phenomenal and and people yes there are people who do it automatically who are brilliant and they it just comes to them. But it is something that you can teach and it's just getting you to observe and to be aware, to have a higher level of awareness of all these little choices that you can make as an artist. And it's truly phenomenal to me. He would talk about, he was what blew my mind, this for a director was enormous, he would talk about putting the stages on a pivot so that you had mm. to learn how to be aware. If people are coming downstage, it's turning this way. The balance of the stage is like this if everyone's going up there. And and that makes a difference even dramatically if you as an audience, all the people are running to one side. There's an imbalance. What happens when the stage is in balance? You know, you... I don't know. I could go on for you. You see how I'm just like going. I could go on for nuts, days and days. I'm nuts about it.
0: Frankly, I wish that you would. I I wish we could set aside (laughs) an entire episode. We have so many questions about masking and breath control, and um, you know how this did or didn't go on to later influence the other work that you've done as a choreographer. Oh, but I I do want to take a minute to, to hear a little bit more about your own show. Because, I'd be, you know, I'd be remiss if I had you on this podcast and we did not talk <laughs> about the fact that you are launching a podcast of which I believe now two episodes have aired. I know the Jonathan yes.
1: Frakes episode came out. And Lavar Burton is out now. And then Will Wheaton is, uh, there was so much material. We had two and a half hour conversation. And I wanted to find a way to, you know, because he had played my son. I am I am close to him. We, we, you know, he's come over to my house. He calls me space mom. I call him space son. His wife is my space in-law mm. you know we I really do feel very familiar with him, but I want be he's such a good podcast host mm. and is used to being controlling in that way that I thought, okay I don't want that to happen. I am shit at playing video games I can't do that so you know at first I thought, well, we could play a game, but I thought it'd be so boring for anyone watching because I'm so bad so I came up with I made it a game and we had to put a penny in it. There were certain things, but it, we played never have I ever we play. And we, we went there, we went there and we talked about stuff that was pretty, pretty interesting. And I don't know if people are going to be shocked <laughs> that we talked about when we lost our virginity and stuff like that, but you know, whatever I, I decided, Hey, what the heck, you know, <laughs> I'm it's your not show you get to talk yeah, about anything you want. Yeah. I mean, well, I didn't have a vision Danny of what I want. You know, I didn't have a clear formula. So it was about finding out something about people who you've spent years with that Mm -hmm. you don't know what, let's go back. Let's talk about this story again. Maybe there's some other thing that we can talk about. Now we've all raised children. What's that? Is there some, you know, what can we talk about? It was also trying to, I, I mean, these people are really interesting, wonderful people. I say that genuinely, yeah. And we are like a family. We fought like a family. We make up like a family. <laughs> we support each other. And I, this was an experiment. This was like a clown thing for me. I was like, mm-hmm. do I risk failure or do I not, you know, do I stay safe and don't do it just because I, I don't have a clear vision? And I went, it's the pandemic. Just do it. Say yes. And, you know, if it's if it doesn't work, okay, I'll go on to something else. Yeah. That's kind of the way I felt, but it's been really fun, and I—I I don't know, maybe it'll branch out to something. I would love to speak to uh, Simon McBurney. That would be phenomenal. Oh wow, that would be a phenomenal. I mean, for me personally, that I would love to have I, him on the show. You
0: know, add me to the to the list of people who would listen to that show. <laughs> uh, that would be an incredible, incredible get. I, I love to, I so appreciate that that sense of trying to lose preciousness wherever possible, which is not to say simply running headlong into any risk as soon as it presents itself, but but that sense of, what is the worst thing that could happen here? I do a podcast that doesn't go very well during the pandemic. Right. That's fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of what it was. I was just like, Gates, just come on. You're not that important. If it doesn't work, so what? You know, It's like, but you know how we get into these battles with ourselves, and it's silly, and I just decided... Just go for it. See what happens. And I love Brian Volk Weiss, who is the CEO of Nacell. He's he's like the greatest CEO I've ever worked with. He, he kind of like just totally believes in me. Oh, no, I love whatever. Just go for it. That doesn't usually happen in, the, in this industry. I like
0: that you have a CEO cheerleader. Yeah, I agree. That's very rare.
1: It's never happened to me. Never. And I'm like, wow. And in the beginning, I was like, okay, what's the catch? Because that's totally in my nature. I have this side of why are they saying they like me? I don't know. I, mm-hmm. some, there's got to be something. And I just realized that was coming from me. That wasn't coming from him, you know? Mm-hmm. So I learned that. Um but back to the mask thing, you see, I'm looking, thinking of the question we had from that guy. I can't get through a whole show of the shows with all of the rich and the wives of this city, the wives of that city. I literally, I can't. Some people find it really amusing that it's so outrageous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, you know, I'm just unable to get to that place. I just feel if they didn't have the money, what would they be like what what would the show be like that's the show i'm interested in <laughs> i'm interested yeah. in the show after they've lost the money and you know the divorce didn't work out or whatever and they don't have the money for the, the to keep the lips full that would be fascinating for me mm. you know and it might be noble it might be incredible they might i don't know i don't want to sound judgmental in a bad way
0: no but but shows about what happens after you lose the money are almost always you know a, a, from my man, Godfrey, to anything else, like it's just always really fabulous to watch what happens in the next moment. I'm so looking forward to the upcoming episodes of your show. I hope very much that at least one clown makes an appearance.
1: <laughs> well, I'm the clown, sadly, the one who's always making the appearance. Uh, the show is called Investigates. Who do you think you are? But um, And it's on Cellcast, but it's on every platform. Yeah, I hope people enjoy it. I have really had a lot of fun. Um, I've learned how to sound edit. It takes forever. But, I can't believe uh, you're doing that yourself. It really does take forever. That is it remarkable. It does. Well, you know what? It's because it makes a huge difference. And I, mm. I feel the editing really is what makes it work or not work in a way. Um, mm. And so... When the first time I I let them do it and I, it, it, it just wasn't right. And I went back and I did, did it all myself. Then they polish it. They make the sound richer, but I do the actual edits of what people are saying. Um, I I enjoy it. And I take as much of myself out as I can. but not enough ever.
0: (laughs) One of the many advantages of getting to do your own editing is you get to decide exactly how and when you want people to hear you.
1: Oh, I can't stand to hear myself. You know, I don't know if you feel that way, but I'm like, Oh God,
0: you may have chosen the the wrong uh, line of work in that case, but uh, (laughs) I I enjoy it immensely. I have enjoyed it immensely. Thank you again so much. This has just been you
1: Danny. Absolutely. Lovely. Oh, thank you so much for asking me on. Take care.
0: Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice, and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form. Or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I did not do anything remotely like clowning when I was younger, but I did ride horses for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And the kind of women who teach horseback riding have always terrified me. They're the kind who always have like little cross stitches on their pillows of like, I can only please one person per day. Today is not your day. Tomorrow's not looking <laughs> good either. And are just serious women with a gimlet eye. And I was just terrified. And they would like the one thing that they would always say is you ride like you're terrified of falling off. And you need to know Mm. if you keep coming back, you're going to fall. You need to get ready to fall. Um, And I just, my whole thing was like, of course, I'll do whatever you say because you terrify me. But that was the one piece of advice I couldn't internalize. I just thought in my head, like, you wait and see. I will be the one kid who goes their entire life without ever falling off a horse. I may end up being very bad at riding horses, but I will never fall. That will be my one thing. And I was, you know, I was able to like clutch on the saddle and put it off for uh, six months longer. But of course I fell and I hated it. But it also, once it happened, it was just like, now I'm not terrified. To listen to the rest of that
1: conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.